From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, California has always been a place to write home about. David Kippen will read letters and diaries from California. But first, this is the time when the ideas of Israel's left-wing pro-peace camp are needed more than ever. That's what Dahlia Scheindlin says. We'll speak with her in a moment. What happens after Israel ends its war in Gaza? The Israeli government seems to be incapable of thinking about that. This is the time when the ideas of Israel's left-wing pro-peace camp are needed more than ever. That's what Dahlia Scheindlin says. She's a Tel Aviv-based public opinion researcher and a political scientist. Her book, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled, was published in September. She writes for the New York Times op-ed page, The Guardian, Haaretz, and The New York Review, where her article, Israel, the Left in Peril, appears now. We reached her today in Tel Aviv. Dahlia Scheindlin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, the toll at this point, we're speaking on the evening, uh, Monday evening, November 20th. Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis on October 7th, wounded more than 3,300. As of today in Gaza, the Israelis have killed more than 12,300 Palestinians. Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad hold more than 239 hostages, including foreign nationals. First question, what does it mean to be on the left in Israel? Thank you for starting with that, because it's not always obvious to people from the outside. For Israelis, these words have very clear meanings and codes. But I think in Europe and in the U.S., many people hear the terms left, right, and center, and they think of things like big government or small government, raising or lowering taxes, immigration policy, maybe progressive issues like LGBT rights. And in Israel, some of those things are included, but they're very much secondary. When Israelis hear the terms left, right, or center, they think of one thing before anything else, and that is where a person stands with relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Israeli left is primarily still defined by the idea of ending the occupation and reaching a negotiated resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, probably in the form of a two-state solution, which involves the Palestinian state next to Israel. And of course, the vast majority of Jewish Israelis and a majority of all Israelis consider themselves right-wing, which means hardline on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Let's talk a little more about the right in the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the worst leader in Israel's history, maybe in all of Jewish history. Those are not my words. That's what Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, wrote recently. Netanyahu is also the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history, 15 years in power off and on. How would you describe his current government? Sometimes we have trouble thinking of new adjectives to describe his government. And so on the one hand, you have a pair of parties who actually ran together as a single, uh, well, sort of a, a combined list in the last elections in November 2022 called Religious Zionism. And that party essentially subscribes to really what can only accurately be described as a Jewish supremacist outlook. It is theocratic. It is illiberal. It is fundamentally anti-democratic. And it is annexationist by all measures, it's not something hidden. They are proud uh, to say that they would never want to give up on Israeli sovereignty. 
over all of the historic land of Israel. And probably in their minds, they would be happy to have the other side of the Jordan River as well, even though that's not actually in their platform, but they have a very originalist view, shall we say, of Jewish sovereignty. And compared to them, it is common to think of Netanyahu's party, the Likud, which is a historic party, as only moderately right-wing. But the fact is Likud is no longer a moderate right-wing party. It hasn't been for a number of years. Since Netanyahu became the head of the Likud again in the late 2000s and and became prime minister for his second term in 2009, he has essentially allowed the Likud to take a populist, illiberal, nationalist direction um, and has and Likud has played a very strong role in what has been about a decade and a half of a kind of assault on Israeli democracy and democratic institutions. And so Likud is not really much less extreme at this point than religious Zionism. The only difference is that it's not specifically theocratic and there are still some people within it who would support some measure of separation of religion and state. But because they take such a nationalist Jewish, you know, Jewish nationalist approach to things, in a way, the policy distinctions are being erased. For example, both the Likud and those far-right religious parties and, and, and the ultra-Orthodox parties we can talk about separately, but all of those parties essentially support permanent Israeli control over all of the historic mandate Palestine. And maybe they come at it from slightly different nuances, but, they, but the result is the same. You have a government that is united over that issue, and the only question is how to do it pragmatically. Also, I should say one last thing. It is not only theocratic, advancing Jewish supremacist ideas and illiberal and annexationist. It also includes a prime minister who is on, on, actively on trial for three counts of corruption and, and has you know, numerous other corrupt ministers or people who've been convicted or, uh, or suspected and investigated for corruption. It is a government that includes all of those aspects, not committed to equality, probably even advancing a form of Jewish supremacy, annexationist, theocratic, illiberal, and includes numerous corrupt figures, including the prime minister himself. And of course, before the war, there were 10 months of the most significant, biggest political protests in Israel's history due to Netanyahu's judicial coup, it's called, legislation aimed at dramatically weakening Israel's judiciary, which would rescue him from the three corruption trials that you mentioned. Uh, Tell us a little about those pro-democracy protests And what was the role of the Israeli left in those protests? Yeah, well, just to give a little more background, uh, Netanyahu's new government, within a few days of the government being inaugurated, the justice minister, which is who is from Netanyahu's Likud party, unveiled a series of plans that would essentially smother judicial independence, undercut it almost entirely, and leave an essentially completely unconstrained executive power. The executive, of course, is not even really separate from the legislature. We have a parliamentary system. The cabinet is drawn from the coalition of parties that hold the majority. And so the executive essentially can control the legislature. There is no other formal institutional constraint on the power of the executive. Israel doesn't have a formal written constitution. It doesn't have two chambers of parliament. There is no presidential veto. And suddenly people realize it's not just a matter of one piece of legislation at a time that might undermine democracy, it's, the, it's destroying the institution uh, that could constrain those kinds of illiberal uh, aims of this government. And so very suddenly there was a huge, huge outpouring of people within the first week, and then they just grew over time. At points there have been strikes, they've managed to really shut down the country. Now, for the Israeli left, which I argued what the Israeli right stood for, but the Israeli left is primarily still defined 
by the idea of ending the occupation. They see the occupation as undermining Israeli democracy. And I wouldn't say that's really a matter of opinion. The occupation is fundamentally an undemocratic policy. Very few people even deny that on the right. But I think the difference is that on the left, they feel that it undermines democracy for Israel's governance and for Israel's own citizens, uh, as well as leading Israel to a situation where it is essentially one state that is either fundamentally institutionally unequal in a permanent way and loses the Jewish majority, which many of the mainstream left who consider themselves Zionists take very seriously. So for them, there was a natural connection. If there's a pro-democracy protest, naturally it should also be anti-occupation. And I think that many left-wingers wanted that to be the center of the protest as a message uh, in terms of the banners, in terms of the kind of rallying cry. But from the very first week of this protest against the government, the rest of the demonstrators who were frankly from the beginning quite a large portion and very quickly became the majority, wanted nothing to do with the anti-occupation message. And the decision was kind of made by all involved, including the anti-occupation camp, that the most important thing now is to stop this government by bringing in as many people as possible. And to do that, it was kind of understood that the mainstream Israelis, what I'm gonna call the mainstream center, could put people and messages and speeches at the, at the front, you know, the forefront of these demonstrations that did not focus on opposing the occupation. They made that compromise in order to make sure that people of all political stripes who oppose this government would show up to the demonstrations. And it worked in terms of mass participation. It's actually, as far as I know, unprecedented in any country that so many people as a, as a portion of the population, as far as we can tell, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Israelis every single week for what would have been 40 weeks um, on October 7th, taking to the streets sometimes more than once a week. It caused major disruptions in society at points, and that would only have been possible with this big tent approach. And then came October 7th. What happened to the peace groups, the anti-occupation groups, the human rights organizations and activists after October 7th? Like everybody else, they were shocked. Nobody had experienced anything like this ever in the history of the country. Uh, it was simply a time of complete paralysis, shock, mourning, loss, grieving. And in fact, it's not really over. Everybody's grieving constantly. And because we're talking about such a small community, remember, among all of Israeli society, only about 18% of the public considers themselves to be either moderate or firm left. Um, and in the Jewish community, it's only about 11 to 15%. And so many people know each other, especially if they've been involved in any kind of activism. And so there was a very personal sense of shock and grieving and loss, like I said before. There was a very strong sense early on that people simply mourned also the ongoing cycle of bloodshed, the vast scale of devastation in Gaza. Some people have actual colleagues, friends, coworkers in Gaza. And so what we saw is after some time, between, I would say, the second and the third week of the war, more and more left-wingers from various kind of pieces of the Israeli left, whether it was human rights organizations, peace organizations, what we call shared society, people who work on Jewish-Arab relations inside Israel, or I should say among Israeli citizens, since there is no real inside or outside Israel when you don't actually have clear borders. But all of these kinds of organizations and many individuals I think began to kind of find each other and have conversations about what should be done. Do they agree on calling for a ceasefire? I think that was a little bit trickier in the beginning. But one thing everybody agreed on was 
to try to save, you know, to try to pre prevent and stave off or at least reduce the harm to civilians. Uh, and that very much, of course, included rallying for the hostages which were being held in Gaza. But a general cry that more violence is not the answer, that there is no military solution, that another aggressive cycle in Gaza, which now has come to seem, you know, vastly more extreme than the others. In the, in the early days, the police had communicated they weren't going to tolerate demonstrations either of solidarity with Gaza or against the war. So it was very tentative in the beginning. But I think that they are coming out in greater force. In fact, just this past Saturday evening, for the first time, the police actually permit, gave a permit for a demonstration uh, in favor of a ceasefire in Tel Aviv that brought you know, a couple hundred, a few hundred people out. And it was a little bit tense because there were many, you know, very aggressive uh, counter protesters from the right. But that would be the first time there was a formal uh, recognized demonstration with, you know, more than just a few dozen people that was permitted by the police. So there are activities taking place. And of course, many of the NGOs, especially those that deal with either the West Bank or Gaza, are frantically trying to track their, you know, track what's going on, uh, take stock of the damage being done, you know, keep tabs on individuals and their colleagues and coworkers get information out. Uh, so everybody's very busy and as well as trying to cope with all the emotional difficulties. Now we're told something like 84% of Israelis believe Netanyahu and his government should take responsibility for making the Hamas atrocities possible. And more than half say he should resign after the war. And of course, the question we're asking in, in this segment is what, what happens then? In terms of what will happen next politically, well, nobody knows, but I will say this government is in a very, very bad situation with relation to public opinion. You mentioned that about half say Netanyahu should resign after the war. Let me add to that uh, another roughly 25% uh, who think she, he should resign during the war. Plus, at many points throughout Israeli history, at least since 1973, Israelis often punish leaders when a war breaks out on that leader's watch. Joe Biden and the Americans have been focused very much on what happens after the war. Biden has been consistently arguing that American policy is for a two-state solution. Of course, this is something that the Israeli left has been thinking about for decades. Before October 7th, many on the left in the United States no longer favored a separate Palestinian state. Instead, they supported a single democratic state of Jewish and Palestinian citizens. How much support was there for that on the left in Israel? You know, support for that on the left uh, never was that much higher than it was for the total population. So among Israeli Jews, that, that, that number of people who support a democratic single state solution, you know, the kind of one person, one vote that people often associate with how South African apartheid ended, never really got beyond the 25% range, maybe barely scraping 30% if you add in Jewish and Arab population. And it wasn't much higher among the left. And by the way, it's almost a mirror image on the Palestinian side. There are more Palestinians who support a single democratic state between the river and the sea in which all Jews and Palestinians are equal, which is sort of how we ask it in surveys, but not a great deal more. Usually that number reaches into the mid 30% range at best. And every time it seems like it might go up, it then goes back down and usually falls behind the two-state solution as a solution. I should say that when you said that the left at one time supported the two-state solution, it wasn't only about the left. Pretty much every Israeli prime minister from 
Ehud Barak, who was briefly prime minister from 1999 to, to late 2000, uh, he openly negotiated for a two-state solution. And after that, every prime minister at some point, uh, at least nominally, claimed to support the establishment of a Palestinian state next to Israel, which we call the two-state solution. The question is what they did on the ground to bring it about. But it's notable that even Netanyahu, at points early on in his comeback, barely managed to mouth the words, but did kind of commit himself, mostly probably due to you know, international appearances, to something like a two-state solution. And so the question is really, why did it fail? Why did anybody ever fail to get there when there was somewhat more mainstream adoption of the idea? Um, and I should say on the Palestinian side too, because increasingly I can't separate the two in my analysis since, you know, we had a similar process on the Palestinian side. It became much more mainstream. The mainstream PLO and Fatah leadership supported it. And yet the two sides couldn't ever agree on it. And I think that's something that has required a need for update for a long time, which is why there are efforts to rethink the two-state solution. And you yourself have been involved in those efforts. You belong to a group called A Land for All, which favors a confederation arrangement between two states. How would that work? They would avoid the hard partition paradigm uh, and have greater mobility, equality of the two sides, even though they both have their own nation state, greater mobility, the ability of people to live as permanent residents uh, on the other side while keeping citizenship on their own side, keeping Jerusalem an open shared city without a partition between it. And those are the kinds of updates I think are gonna be absolutely essential if anybody, uh, if, there's, if there's ever a chance to get back to something like self-determination for both sides. You use the phrase between the river and the sea to refer to the proposal for a single democratic state, uh, one person, one vote for both Jewish and Palestinian citizens. Of course, this is a very controversial phrase in American politics where the pro-Israeli establishment has defined it as meaning the annihilation of the Jews of Israel. Are you suggesting that's not the way it's understood in Israel from the river to the sea? In Israel, if you ask the Jewish population, it mostly is understood like that. Some Palestinians would see river to the sea as implying a democratic state where every person is equal. And let's be honest, some Palestinians see from the river to the sea as a complete Palestinian-dominated state in which Jews would not be equal if they would even be allowed to stay. We know this is true because I test these kinds of things in survey research together with my Palestinian colleagues. We have a joint survey project. I'm talking about uh, my, my longtime polling colleague, uh, Dr. Khalil Shikaki. We conduct joint public opinion surveys among Israelis and Palestinians, and we ask each side, do you support a two-state solution? Do you support one equal democratic state? Or do you support a solution in which your side completely dominates and the other side is not given the same rights? And we know that there is also a portion who support that on both sides, not the same exact portion, but it's getting closer to the to the portion of people who support two states as support for the two-state solution declines in both places in a kind of mirror image. So all of those things are signs of a serious deterioration in what I would consider democratic means of resolving the conflict. Israelis, particularly Israeli Jews, I should say, believe that when Palestinians say that, they're actually calling for the annihilation of Jews, considering that in Israel today, on a graphic level, you will never see a map of Israel that shows Israel between 1949 and 1967. All images, whether they're formal government maps, school books, or simply iconic images that you'll see, you know, in commercial settings or, 
you know, a necklace that people wear in the shape of the state of Israel, all of them show Israel as if it's from the river to the sea. There is never a green line, even on our weather maps, which I think is the great barometer of forgettability. So hmm. if it's on your weather map, it seems completely normal and you will never notice that Israelis only ever consider their country without any semblance of a green line. So I wish that people realized, both in America, you know, among the American Jewish community that thinks it's supporting Israel by, by refusing to let Palestinians talk about river to sea, at the very least, they should recognize that Israelis are doing the exact same thing every single day. So big picture, the left in Israel has not changed its belief that it's essential to achieve a historic territorial compromise with the Palestinians. Does the Israeli left agree right now with the rest of Israel that the destruction of Hamas as a military force is a prerequisite to whatever comes next? I think that that is basically true. After what Hamas did on October 7th, it just can't be justified in any way, shape, or form. They, you know, I mean, listen, the Israeli Jewish left never liked Hamas anyway, of course. Hamas is theocratic. Islamist party that it does not support anything remotely like liberal values, runs Gaza with an authoritarian hand, and is repressive and violent. And so it's not like anybody on the Israeli Jewish left that I know ever supported anything like Hamas. They hoped for Palestinian sake that Palestinians would choose to live in a democratic society. But I think many of us thought that it's not for anybody to tell Palestinians how to live, but that we, we certainly believed, and I say we, because of course I do subscribe to these views, and you know, we believe that there's no hope for Palestinians to establish anything like normal representative government, democratic or not, of their own free will while they're essentially under Israeli occupation. But I don't see anybody truly opposing the idea that Hamas needs to be crushed militarily at the very least. And then there's a political, you know, let's say, let's say a difference of political analysis uh, within the left, I would say about those who think that Hamas cannot be completely destroyed because it's so deeply embedded in Palestinian society, especially because it's kept such tight control for so many years now over Gaza that people, anybody working in the public sector is essentially working for Hamas. And so you know, some people would say you can't possibly destroy Hamas militarily because it's so extensively embedded. And it's, you know, it's just a waste of lives to try. And then others on the left who say, well, I don't know what else to do. If we all agree that Hamas has to be destroyed militarily, there's no other option than for Israel to continue with a very aggressive military approach. Some people on the left have come to that conclusion, but those are some of the differences of opinion that I've heard. So last question, the left won't win elections in Israel anytime soon. It's basically gonna be up to outside powers, especially Joe Biden, uh, to determine whether Israel can move towards negotiations for a two-state solution. But what should the Israeli left be doing, you know, in the meantime, right now? Yeah, I think the Israeli left is in a very difficult position because Israeli society is so completely traumatized and, and miserable that those who are, you know, who did not prioritize reaching a two-state solution before or any sort of political resolution uh, are certainly feeling extremely bitter and angry and um, many, you know, feel thoughts of vengeance and think that there's no other way but to have this, you know, catastrophic destruction in Gaza. And so the left is up against a very, very hostile environment in trying to make any sort of case that looks like it's a matter of giving concessions to Palestinians. I think what the left, I think the left's best argument is still a very hard one to get across, but I think that somebody needs to make the case that Israel has actually never been able to try to implement 
a political resolution to the conflict, a comprehensive political framework for containing a conflict that cannot be completely solved. There will never be perfect security, not in Israel or Palestine and not anywhere in the world. And that can't be uh, an excuse not to try to, to do better. And what we have tried over the last decades is Israel in one way or another, continuing to expand its control over the Palestinians, prevent Palestinian self-determination. And to do that, Israel has made colossal mistakes. And it was largely Netanyahu who you know, presided over a, a you know, ruinous policy of being so dead set against ever reviving negotiations with a unified Palestinian leadership that he indulged Hamas, if not bolstered them by allowing them to have money from Qatar and essentially allowing them to stay in power, you know, satisfying neither the right nor the left at this point, because the right says he should have destroyed them, you know, years ago. But it was in his interest not to have a unified Palestinian leadership just to head off anything like a peace process. And that has that is certainly part of the reason why. Hamas was able to, you know, get stronger all this time. Now, I don't want to take any of the responsibility for what happened away from Hamas. They are single-handedly responsible for this, you know, barbaric attack on Israeli civilians. And at the same time, uh, you know, unresolved military conflicts will always reach cycles of violence and bloodletting if they are not contained through political solutions. Now, I think that's the hardest case to make. Um, but somebody has to make it. And, and only, it's only the left who has the convictions to be able to make the point that what Israel has done over the last many decades is the opposite. One of the things that makes this very hard is that right-wingers and left-wingers in Israel can't agree on what has happened up until now. So for most people in the Israeli mainstream, not just the right, but mainstream centrists and moderate right-wingers as well, will say, but we did try. We tried Oslo. We tried peace during Oslo. We tried to negotiate at Camp David in the year 2000. These are tough questions. And I think that the left doesn't, again, doesn't do anybody favors by ignoring them. But I think we have to recognize that what happened historically were not actual attempts to implement a peace agreement that would help de-escalate the situation and contain violence. The left is the only community capable of making that argument right now. Dahlia Scheindlin, she wrote about the Israeli left now for the New York Review. Dahlia, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now, to step back from Gaza for a minute, let's talk about a new book. It's called Dear California. The Golden State in Diaries and Letters. It's fascinating and a lot of fun and edited by David Kippen. He's former director of literature for the National Endowment for the Arts, founder of the nonprofit bilingual lending library in a storefront in LA's Boyle Heights called Libros Schmibros. And he's author of the modern library book, Dear Los Angeles, The City in Diaries and Letters, 1542 to 2018. He's written for dozens of publications, including The Nation. We'd reached him today in L.A. 
David Kippen, welcome back. Thank you, John. California has always been a place to write home about. That is your point of departure, and it's an excellent one. How did you decide what to include in these 500 pages of letters and diary entries? What were your criteria for inclusion? Essentially, if it made me laugh, if it made me choke up, if it played in some sort of indirect uh, oblique way off of the diary or letter entry next to it, um, that was always nice. But basically, I am looking for stuff that will help me understand California more fully. And likewise, I hope my readers and, you know, essentially it, it's a gut, you know, the, the, this book could have been 10 times as long and it still would have been incomplete. Well, what I want to do uh, here is talk about some of my favorites. Okay. And ask you to read some of them. One of my favorites is a letter from Charles Mingus, the legendary jazz bassist who visited the Watts Towers and chatted with Simon Rodia while he was working on building them. Could you read us from that entry? Yes, but I will clarify, he didn't just visit them. He grew up a couple of blocks away. Here it goes. Here's uh, from uh, Charles Mingus. He says, Mr. Rodia was usually cheerful and friendly while he worked, and sometimes drinking that good red wine from a bottle. He rattled off about Amerigo Vespucci, Julius Caesar, Buffalo Bill, and all kinds of things he read about in the old encyclopedia he had in his house. The local rowdies came around and taunted him and threw rocks and called him crazy, though Mr. Rodia didn't seem to pay them much mind. And then in contrast, Vita Sackville West wrote from Palm Springs, March 28th, 1933, to her longtime friend, some would say worshiper, Virginia Woolf, who had immortalized her in Orlando. What did Vita Sackville West tell Virginia Woolf about Los Angeles? Los Angeles is hell. The Americans have an unequal genius for making everything hideous. Hollywood, however, is fun. It is pure fantasy. You never know what you'll come on around the corner, whether half an ocean liner or Trafalgar Square or the facade of Grand Hotel or a street in Stratford-on-Avon with Malayan Huris walking down it. We were taken around by Mr. Gary Cooper. I should point out that Vita Southfield West here is um, falling prey to the age-old temptation of confusing Los Angeles with Hollywood. This is a studio tour. But when she's writing in such high spirits and she's doing it to Virginia Woolf, it's hard to begrudge the woman. Of course, the story here is not all Hollywood. From the World War II home front, you have included Charles Kikuchi's internment diary. Fascinating. Many entries. I knew nothing about this. Do you have a favorite? April 9th, 1942, Dateline, Berkeley, Dear Mariko. San Francisco, Japanese town certainly looks like a ghost town. All the stores are closed and the windows are bare except for a mass of, quote, evacuation sale, unquote, signs. The junk dealers are having a Roman holiday since they can have their cake and eat it too. It works like this. They buy cheap from the Japanese leaving and sell dearly to the Okies coming in for defense work. Result, good profit. So who exactly was Charles Kikuchi and where did you find this? 
Um, I found this in the rare and hard to come by book and manuscript room of the San Francisco Public Library. It has been published, though I think it's long out of print right now. Charles Kikuchi was a college student. He went to Cal, which I gather they want us to call California now. <laughs> For football reasons. <laughs> yes, exactly. He went to California, and I believe he worked on the daily, should we call it Cal instead of Californian? <laughs> And he was a very assimilated Japanese-American kid. And uh, of course, along comes Pearl Harbor and the roundups begin. And he is the most patriotic American kid you'd ever want to meet. He can't quite believe what's going on at first. Um, and they ship him off. I think it's to the Manzanar camp. And he starts in reporting for and editing the Manzanar paper. And gradually, a lot of his illusions about the country start to fall away. And yet he remains defiantly American, even behind the razor wire of Manzanar. He's talking to his friends about how best to vote in the upcoming election, because they haven't had their voting rights taken away. And it's this bizarre universe in which a guy imprisoned by his own country is nevertheless trying to figure out who the best city council candidate for his district in Berkeley is. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's this combination of naivete and optimism and defiance that I find, frankly, heroic, anything but depressing. And yet, you know, looked at in 85 years or so worth of retrospect, quietly horrifying. Um, you know, it's not written with a sense of outrage. It's written with a kind of determined disbelief. And at the same time, this was a guy who, who, who sort of had his consciousness raised behind the razor wire. And he wound up living up until, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, and he died while on a peace march in the Soviet Union. Well, I also liked the letter you have from Marilyn Monroe. It's like a change <laughs> of key here. It's yes. about Sigmund Freud. November 5th, 1960. Dear John, and that's John Houston. I have it on good authority that the Freud family does not approve of anyone making a picture of the life of Freud. So I wouldn't want to be part of it. First, because of his great contribution to humanity, and secondly, my personal regard for his work. Thank you for offering me the part of Annie O, and I wish you the best in this and all other endeavors. Yours, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I think if she, if she could make one movie with John Huston, probably better it should be The Misfits than Freud. We should report here that John Huston did make a movie about Freud in 1962. He got Jean-Paul Sartre to write the screenplay, but... That turned out to be eight hours long. Houston cut it and Sartre took his name off the picture, but we are told that many key elements from Sartre's script survive in the finished film. It featured Montgomery Clift as Freud. And instead of Marilyn Monroe, he got Susanna York to play the character who inspired young Freud to come up with the theory of psychoanalysis. However, Marilyn Monroe has her name slightly wrong uh, in this letter. Freud, in his book about the case, called her not Annie O, but Anna O. 
this yes, is this is not the Freudian. This is the, oh yes, Marilyn Monroe thinks she's doing an adaptation of Oklahoma, and she's supposed to be playing Annie Oakley or Annie Get Your Gun. And she's clearly mistaken. You gotta have Susan Sontag in this book, and sure enough, here she is at 16 years old, a high school student in the San Fernando Valley. April 8th, 1949. This afternoon, I heard a lecture on, quote, the function of art and the artist, unquote, by Anais Nin. She is very startling, pixie-like, otherworldly, small, finely built, dark hair, and much makeup, which made her look very pale, large, questioning eyes, a marked accent, which I could not label. Her speech is over-precise. She shines and polishes every syllable with the very tip of her tongue and teeth. One feels that if one were to touch her, she would crumble into silver dust. This is a high school student in the San Fernando Valley. This is the sweetheart of North Hollywood, huh? <laughs> and what, what I find delicious about it is like a page away, you've got Anais Nin herself sharing her impressions of mid-century California. Alas, and don't think it's not because I didn't look, I could not find her diary of speaking that night at UCLA <laughs> so we could get her side of it, maybe even pick out a striking brunette in the second row, take notes <laughs> who might've been Susan Sontag. Well, I wanna talk to you about Thomas Pynchon, the famously <laughs> reclusive genius novelist. Before we look at his entries in your book, Dear California, I should note that I'm pretty sure you're the only person in America who has published an interview with Pynchon. <laughs> you found that, did you? How did, how did you do that? Well, um, I, uh, I cheated. There's, there's a magazine in Northern California um, founded as, as a, 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 a kind of a folly, but it's actually had some staying power called Alta. It's devoted to all things California and the West. Um, it's the baby of William Randolph Hearst's grandson, Will Hearst, um, who is a journalist going way back. And the magazine turns out to be quite strong and getting stronger all the time. And they have this habit of taking pitches from me that any magazine editor in his right mind would reject. And in this instance, I pitched them an interview with Thomas Pinchon um, consisting strictly of lines from his own books, but organized in such a way that I'm asking this putative Thomas Pinchon about his childhood on Long Island. And the answer becomes a description of Long Island circa Thomas Pinchon's childhood in that came out of his first novel, V. And it goes up, every novel of Thomas Pinchon is quoted right up until the most recent one, which takes place on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where he is commonly assumed to live. And so I make this implicit case over the course of this totally spurious interview that in fact, this man who has guarded his privacy quite closely all these years um, and God love him for it, if that's what it takes to write what I consider to be, you know, the greatest body of work of any modern American novelist, then by all means, wear a Groucho mask 24-7 if you want to. But um, as Pinchon himself has been the first to admit, autobiography in fiction is inevitable and not even worth trying to avoid. And so, yes, there are these moments in his work over the course of all these years that I believe cast an interesting light on his life and vice versa. And, and can be taken to be answers to questions posed by you. 
Yes, absolutely. So what is your favorite pension entry in Dear California? Well, I'm pretty high on this one, November 25th, 1970. Uh, so Pynchon's probably working on Gravity's Rainbow in his duplex a couple of blocks from the Strand in Manhattan Beach. And he's writing to Arthur Misner, a rather establishment American literary critic. So what, what else their correspondence consisted of, I have no idea. But in 1970, he writes to Misner, the further I get into this wretched profession, the clearer it is that I am doing very little consciously beyond some clerk routine, assembling expediting, and that either A, there is some extra personal source, or B, readers are the ones who do most of the work. Hope you're having a good year. This university thing these days must be something of a hassle, but also, I would guess, a tremendous source of hope. I know I ain't up to it, but I'm glad there are people who are. Nice. As one academic to another, John, <laughs> nice to see Pinchon circa 1970, having some faith in the college kids. I hope he would have some today. And last but not least, Mike Davis. You have uh, a wonderful Mike Davis entry about driving through the Ramona Valley east of San Diego after the big fire of 2007. In the 1930s, my older sister cantered her Indian pony through my parents' avocado ranchito in Bostonia, 10 miles south of Ramona, and the little house my father built with its knotty pine walls has survived every fire. Otherwise, little of my childhood in Bostonia remains. The Barker family's 1880s general store, the irrigation ditches, the country western dance hall, the gas station that sold cigarettes to 12-year-olds, the Fry's hardware store, the lemons and the pomegranates, all vanished in a whirlwind of growth. What remains are aging tract homes, auto body shops, intractable methamphetamine addiction, and long lines of taillights headed out toward the brave new suburbs. Mike Davis. Mike Davis. David Kippen. His wonderful new collection is Dear California, The Golden State in Diaries and Letters. David, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Anytime, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you 
you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.